All right, so, um, I've first of all called this course Aspects of Biblical Counseling. I haven't called it Introduction to Biblical Counseling. There's a, a reason that I haven't called it that, because it's not an introduction to biblical counseling, but it overlaps an introduction. So you are going to get introductory material, but you're going to get the kind of material uh, that uh, some introductions don't include, they, just because they don't have time to include it. So many of the things that we're going to be looking at will either overlap uh, these biblical counseling courses, but they will also, I think, uh, benefit you hopefully greatly because these are things that are very important but unfortunately are often not given the kind of time that they need to be given. I've always felt when uh, I've been uh, taking counseling courses or giving counseling courses that some of the things that we're going to deal with here are not dealt with in the kind of depth and with the kind of understanding that they need to be, because I think that they're crucial. Uh, so please don't think, therefore, that um, just because this is not an introduction to biblical counseling, that you're going to leave half prepared. That's not going to be the case. And the, the, the reason for that is because uh, God's truth is one. Okay, what you learn here is going to kind of help you in your application in other areas of biblical counseling. Okay, so you will get sufficient material here to really make you uh, more proficient at doing this. And I hope that all of you will, you know, will, will pick up from this and, and really help others. <clears throat> Uh, you know, listen to others. Believe that God's truth, not not you, it's not me, um, but God's truth, you know, your handling of God's truth, your, your sharing of God's truth, um, your willingness to um, be like Christ and be patient and listen, okay? Um, that, that that's something that you can use uh, with the different people that God sends your way. And he'll, he will send people your way, you know, to to minister to. There are plenty of God's people uh, that that need help. And unbelievers too, especially unbelievers. But um, let's run through this part one then, okay? So the first thing is, hey Tiffany, there's a, an outline right here if you want to come and get it. The first thing is, uh, what makes something biblical? Okay, because we call it biblical counseling, and yet um, there are now many um, integrationists, many Christians that try to integrate secular psychology with the Bible who also call themselves biblical counselors. So it, it, we have to ask the question, what does it mean when we say biblical? Uh, what we mean is that we're solely concerned with what the Bible says. We're not concerned with what the world says. Okay? 
That's the thing. Uh, to, today, some of the time, quite a lot of the time, is going to be taken up in just giving you a, a, an idea of why secular psychology and integrationist counseling is not biblical and is not right. Okay? Uh, then we're going to go on to the actual application of the biblical model. But by biblical, we mean principally two things, and I've written them down there for you. The first thing is that it's exegetical, which is a great big word that just means that it's taken out of the text of Scripture. Okay? Taken out of the text of Scripture. So you look, you read the Bible, you read it in context, you read it for what it says. Okay? Not what it says to you, but what it says objectively. And you take out of it those truths. And the Bible has a great deal to say about human beings and human problems. Not surprisingly, because it's authored by the person who made you. Uh, so it is the place to go to if we want to find out truth. Now, as we will see when we get down to the fall and, and uh, our sinful predispositions, because we're sinners, uh, even if we're redeemed sinners, we're still, you know, we still fight with the flesh, don't we? Because of that, some of, I might even say quite a lot of the things that the Bible tells us to do seem counterintuitive. Can you see that? They seem counterintuitive because our flesh is telling us, no, that's not going to work. That's not the right way to, to do it. Okay? And it is wisdom and humility to actually take God at what he says is the problem and deal with that. Okay? So it takes listening to God, and in order to listen to God, we have to put God, make him God, and keep him as God. We have to make his word his word and keep it there. Otherwise, we're not going to do what it tells us to do. So that's the first thing. It's taken from the Bible. Secondly, it's also theologically sound. What I mean by theologically sound is that the Bible, the first thing that Bible is written for, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, is for doctrine, teaching, telling us what's so, what's not so. Okay, that the man of God would be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished for all good works. Do you see? That the first thing after, you know, it's, it's good for reproof and instruction and, and all of that, but the first thing is doctrine. In fact, you can't, it can't reprove somebody with the Bible, you can't instruct somebody in righteousness from the Bible if they won't listen to its doctrine. Do you see? So that's why it has to come first. And doctrine is uh, understanding what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about itself, what the Bible says about the world, and what the Bible says about the human heart. All right? So that's very, very important. That's what makes it biblical. I suppose the third thing that we could put in there would be that we actually trust that the Bible is sufficient to do that job. Now, I'm going to 
harp on the sufficiency of scripture a lot in this course. But we, we really must trust that this book is a divinely inspired book and it works wonders. Okay? It does what the word of God would do if it was the word of God. It really does. Okay? So, our job is to, is to read it, is to think through it, is to apply it to our lives, to obey it. Our job is always to make it our authority over our thoughts, over our inclinations. Do you remember the, uh, the episode when Jesus, uh, he'd just gone to a city and uh, they hadn't listened to him. And so two of his disciples, James and John, wanted to call down fire from heaven. You know, in their righteous indignation, they wanted to burn everybody up. That seemed like a good idea to them. That seemed like a, a godly thing to do. No doubt thinking about Elijah in the Old Testament, although it wasn't the same context at all. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. You're certainly not following the spirit of Christ in that. Yes, they rebuffed Christ. Yes, they rejected him. Yes, they were probably going about their daily business and not even thinking about the fact that the Son of God had visited them a few minutes before. Well, welcome to the world. Welcome to sin. God has put up with that for 6,000 years. So, and he puts up with that now, does he? Does he not? He puts up with it in our lives. Does he not? So, um, when he speaks then into that situation, you know, if we heed it, a, a lot can happen. So we have to trust his word. So what is biblical counseling, number two? Well, the, it's using the Bible to basically do these five things. The first thing that it is, which is kind of a coverall statement, it is, is the cure of souls. You don't hear that phrase anymore. It's an old-fashioned way of speaking about it. It actually uh, predates psychoanalysis and psychology and all of that stuff, you know. Freud was about the beginning of the 19th century, coming over uh, to just before the beginning of the Second World War. And, uh, you know, everything stemming from that. But uh, before that, people had problems, and they used to very often come to pastors. And pastors were concerned with the cure of souls, soul sickness. There was something wrong with their soul, something wrong with their spirit, with, with their inner being. Now, of course, when Freud and Rogers and the rest of them came along, they don't believe in that stuff. They don't believe that you have a spirit. They don't believe that you have a soul. So, uh, the idea of cure of souls kind of went out the window. We're not curing souls, we don't believe in souls. We're basically curing, you know, the mind, meaning the brain, and behaviors in the brain, okay? 
So the biblical, uh, when we're applying biblical counsel, we are concerned with the inner being, the, the heart. We're concerned with the mind. We're concerned with the spirit and the will of a person. Okay? And we'll be looking at all of those those different things to understand them a little bit more. This means that those um, those issues that are connected with the body, which produce mental problems or aberrant behavior, okay, we need to be sensitive to that because not everything is a soul or a sin problem. Okay? And again, one of the things you're going to hear me say is that if you are counseling somebody and you, you get to to feeling that, you know, oh, you, you got depression uh, and so on and they've described it to you, one of the things you, you probably should do is say, have you had a checkup with a physician? Okay? Because maybe there's something wrong with them. Okay? That, that maybe they've got a, a, a heart that, you know, that's not working properly. That can make people depressed. And they don't even know it. Okay? Maybe they've got cancer. Maybe they've got, you know, who knows? So it's only sensible to, to understand that our job is not to treat that side of things. Okay? But the vast majority of cases that we'll be dealing with, the vast majority of people that we'll be talking to and are trying to help, it will be a soul issue, which means it's going to be a sin issue. And we'll talk a lot more about this stuff. You might immediately ask, does that mean that they are sinning? Not necessarily. At least not in the way that we normally think about sinning. You know, willfully, hands up against God and so on, doing our own thing, being independent. No, it might not be uh, in those terms. It may well be and very often is. But sometimes it's just the wrong response to something. That sin, you know, sin informs us to respond in a wrong way. Like the disciples, let's call down fire from heaven. Do you see? And because we responded incorrectly to something, there are knock-on effects to that. Okay, so sin is the issue. And so we've got to track that back and then say, well, okay, this is, this is what caused that. This is what caused a train of thought and a train of action and train of thinking that brought you to this bad habits of thinking and feeling we've got to replace that with good habits of thinking and feeling do you see this is how you should have responded and of course when you're saying that you're also telling that to yourself aren't you if any if i encounter this kind of thing this is how i need to be too so this is another reason that this is a useful course secondly um, admonition admonition Um, a lot of psychology and certainly Christian psychology which is an oxymoron but a lot of, of Christian psychology there is no admonition okay and the reason that there is no admonition Okay, telling a person 
that's wrong. You should stop doing that. You need to stop doing that now. Okay, that kind of thing. Uh, is because they've got a psychological diagnosis instead of a biblical diagnosis. You see, a biblical diagnosis is going to say, that's selfish, that's sinful. Okay, God calls that sin, you need to stop it. Whereas a psychological diagnosis is not going to diagnose it as sin, they're going to diagnose it of a problem in your past. Okay, habits that you've uh, required, you know, you're a victim, something like that, yes? I have a book called The Nation of Victims, which I will quote to you, not today, but uh, as we go by here, that uh, really brings that up. You know, we've been convinced that we're, we're all victims, okay? So, uh, the uh, you may have heard of the Nuthetic Counseling, Jay Adams and, and people like that. Um, that verb nuthateo just means admonition. So that's, uh, it involves admonition. Doesn't mean that's the only thing that you do, but it's certainly something that's important. You have to be in a position to point somebody to the, to the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says. This is what you need to do. Okay? It's not, it's not your authority, is it? All you're doing is you're helping another person see what they need to do. And we all need that. The next thing that biblical counseling is, is just discipleship, is it not? I mean, we're just learning to follow Jesus. Um, It'd be so nice to have Jesus as our personal biblical counselor. Yeah, we could ask him, you could, you know, ask him what to do. I'm feeling angry or I, I have this problem here with my relationships or I have this, uh, this compulsion or whatever it might be. And just a word from Jesus, you think it would sort it out. Of course it wouldn't. It would be great to hear from him. It doesn't mean you'd change. Have you read the Bible? <laughs> that doesn't always happen, does it? Uh, we have the words of Jesus, okay? We have the word of God. It is as good, it is as authoritative as if Jesus was speaking right in front of you, okay? So for this discipleship, that's an ongoing learning process. A disciple is a learner. And we all have to relearn, don't we? Uh, the next thing that it is, it's just reminding people. Just reminding each other of what we already know. We know that the Bible says, you know, be a peacemaker. We know that the Bible says put others in front of ourselves and our own desires. But we need to be reminded of that all the time, do we not? So that's part of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is, is, uh, listening, identifying, and then saying, well, I can see here that what seems to me be doing uh, in this in this uh, scenario that you've just described to me, you seem to have acted for yourself. You seem to have gotten angry because somebody, you know, he said that to you, she said that to you, okay? And and you got angry and you felt right and righteous in getting angry. 
And then once you're angry, you feel you want to be, you want to keep angry to justify yourself being angry in the first place. But how much of that anger, when we, re, when we calm down, how much of that anger is justified? How much of that anger would, would God put up with? If, he, if you were being angry right in front of him. Very, very little of it, because very little, little of our anger is actually righteous anger. Okay? When God is angry, he is indignant righteously. When we're angry, we're very often angry because we're putting ourselves first, and we're not willing to humble ourselves, and we're not willing to just be, be meek, that's the word, be meek and take it. Okay. You remember that Moses in that's Numbers 15, I think. Moses, do you want to have a look at that text? Numbers. He's called the meekest man in the world. <laughs> of course, he wrote Numbers. So I mean, yeah, Book of Numbers. I think it's 15, maybe uh, 13. I get to let me just show you if I can find this. It's when Aaron and Miriam twelve actually. Yeah, twelve. Let's let's just, just read it together. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now you can see this is an insertion, not by Moses, but by somebody else later on. Now the man Moses was very humble. The idea there is meek, actually. Meekness is, is being willing to take duress, okay? more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the, uh, the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. Then he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. So what's God doing there? He's clarifying that, look, you may be prophets and prophetesses, but I don't speak face to face with you. Okay? So putting yourself on the same level as Moses is, uh, you know, that's just not going to wash. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings, for he sees the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the um, repercussions follow. So, can you imagine though Moses' predicament? Because please don't think that... Um, that his brother and his sister turned against him uh, in private. They almost certainly did it in public. So they are, straight away they're questioning 
his leadership. They are questioning his authority and they are jeopardizing the, you know, the whole plan of God in the, the, uh, the Exodus wanderings. And do you think that as soon as they said that, then God appeared just to fix it? Probably not. Probably Moses had to wait, you know, an excruciatingly long period or what seemed like that to him. He was probably embarrassed. He was probably a little annoyed. He was probably wondering, what on earth can I do about this? You know, is this mutiny? What's going to happen? You know, how can I lead these people like God has told me to lead them if my lieutenants, as it were, in my own family are against me? And remember what it was about. He hasn't, he hadn't taught any wrong teachings. He hadn't done anything willfully. He just married a woman who they didn't approve of. So, we meet situations where our motives get questioned and we want to be defensive. Okay? But we need to be like Moses. We uh, get misunderstood and it hurts us. But we need to be like Moses. We need to take it. Do you see? We need to take it. It's, it's so important that we understand uh, that you cannot separate biblical character and what the Bible says we should be uh, from uh, biblical counseling. So reminding people, and then lastly, pointing to the light. We always point people to Christ. We always point people to the truth. We never just say, stop it. We also say, you can stop that, but you need to start doing that. Do you see? That's very important. So you point people to the light. This is what God says. And if you do that, it's not always easy. It always sounds easy. Okay? You can say, very often you can, you can say what the Bible says is a, is a kind of a remedy to it. You can say it in a few seconds sometimes. But doing it is not easy. But, you know, all things are possible in Christ. Doesn't the Bible say that? I mean, some of us really love that verse. Okay? Well, we should claim it when we're in trouble and not just when things are going well. All right, so um, I have here a little note after two about uh, the Bob Gans. They're um, a group of, or, or two people, husband and wife, who have written several books. Well, this is one of them called Psycho Heresy. Um, there are several others as well. And um, there are others, many others that have written uh books criticizing psychotherapy. But the Bobgans also have have criticized biblical counseling, the nuthetic 
type of counseling of Jay Adams and so on. They used to be more behind it. Now they're, they are less enthusiastic about it. So I just want to, to, uh, take some time talking about some of their criticisms, mainly of psychology and psychotherapy, so that you understand, um, you know, why we're biblical counselors and why we're not interested in Christian psychology or secular psychology. Uh, but I also want to take up some of their uh, disagreements with biblical counseling, just to be fair. Okay? Not, not all biblical counselors, just because they use the Bible, are good. Same as not all Bible teachers, just because they use the Bible, are good. Um, some biblical counselors actually cause a lot of trouble. Why? Because they don't treat people as people. They don't treat people as, as faulty, as, you know, a work in progress. They're too quick to condemn and too quick to admonish them to do something that they're not ready to do yet. They're too quick to prescribe the problem, or sorry, diagnose the problem, and prescribe a problem, uh, a substitute for it, instead of actually listening to find out, you know, what the problem is, or if there's something else, or if that really is the problem. Because very often, a person might come to you, and they might share something that they're hurt about, or troubled by, and that's actually not the problem. They might think it is. But there may be uh, something else that's in the background okay, that is kind of playing uh, with their heartstrings and with their emotions and doing its work. And you need to kind of understand that. Okay, You can't always deal with that, but you need to understand it so that you can tell them, okay, you've got to draw a line and move forward with Christ. Okay? But you have to understand what the issue is. Otherwise you, you might wrongly just and, and shallowly use the Bible with them and be ineffectual. So any questions about, about those things? Yes, Susan. You just listen. Um, I don't have it on here, but uh, if you had the second page, then the second page would uh, would have uh, in part three, okay, which I haven't given you yet. Okay, part three, uh, number two, says listen, listen, and listen again. Okay. And then it says, listen to what they say, listen for things that don't fit, listen for things that are repeated, listen for whether they accept any specific fault, listen for signs of humility and or pride, especially pride. Okay, but listen, listen, listen. Okay, it's very important. Um, you don't have to... You don't have to listen like, uh, you know, the, the Hollywood ideal of uh, the psychologist in his chair, you know, with his pen tapping against his teeth. Uh, 
you know, like that. You, you, you just listen to them as a human being. Okay? But you, you pay attention to them. You, you give them both of your ears. And you pay attention to what they're saying. Okay? And after a while, what you'll do is you'll, you'll, you'll start to pick up on some things. You'll start to think, hold on, I mean, they've repeated that. Or she, she got emotional when she said that. Okay? And make a little note, maybe. And you come back to it. Okay? Or, that doesn't fit. Why did he put that in there? I didn't ask him about that. And he's not talking about that, but he put it in there. Okay? I need to come back to that. Do you see? That kind of thing. All right. So, let's just take uh, a short time then and uh, look into uh, some of the problems with uh, psychology, secular psychology, and uh, a little bit about uh, what biblical counseling can be if it's done wrongly. First of all, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm no expert in these areas, okay? But I can read. And I can read from psychologists, okay? And I can read people who are psychologists who are against it. Some of the uh, books that I've read, and I've got a whole bunch of them, uh, that are against it. This one, for example, The Dark Side of Christian Counseling by E.S. Williams. This is an English author. Uh, this is Freud, by the way. He's looking a bit like Count Dracula in the picture there. Um, uh, he is, uh, or was director of public health for Croydon Health Authority for many years. Croydon is a borough of London. Okay, so you're talking about probably 100, 200,000 people or more, maybe 500,000 people. Um, so, you know, he's uh, certainly an expert in this area. And there's many other, Paul Vitz and other people like that. But um, <clears throat> let me uh, just go through some of these things. First of all, I don't know how many of you are aware of the fact that psychology, especially the the psychologizing of the West has only come about within your lifetimes. Okay? Uh, it, 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 I mean, it struck a note very quickly. So I'm thinking of that, um, what was that um, Hitchcock thriller with, uh, was it Audrey Hepburn in it? No, not Audrey Hepburn. No, Ingrid Bergman was in it. No, not the birds. <laughs> Was it called Suspicion or something like that? Okay, so it's done in the 1940s, I think. It's a great movie. But, you know, that kind of had that depiction of, uh, I think it was James Stewart was in there, but uh, it had this depiction of uh, a psychologist and how, you know, smart he was and how he understood people and, and so on. And Hollywood has kind of portrayed psychologists as, as being objective scientists who have uh, identified problems and they know what the issues are and they've got these these labels that they use and these designations that they use and these are based on objective scientific research. Yes? Nothing could be further than the truth. Okay? That is not true. Now, I'm not saying that these people aren't smart. Not saying that these people haven't seen things and, and you know, written 
good observational notes on these things. But as far as their diagnosis of things are concerned, uh, that is very often awry. Why? Well, because nearly every major, and there are now over 200 conflicting schools of psychology, uh, but nearly every major school of psychology, the Maslow School, the Rogerian School, the Freudian School, the Jungian School, Adler, um, Fromm, uh, the guy who did the Pavlov with the, you know, the primal scream stuff. Okay, they contradict each other. And they're all, nearly all, I think all of them, atheists. Young was a bit into the magical, mystical stuff. But nearly all atheists. Freud was an atheist. He wrote the book, The Future of an Illusion, speaking about the illusion of Christianity. Um, even though he was fascinated with the devil. He was. He was fascinated with the devil. Um, but some of these these people were, were very, very strong atheists. Maslow and people like that signed the Humanist Manifesto and so on. Very outspoken against um, Christianity in particular. So if you're an atheist, you don't believe that God's there, which means you believe that man evolved. Okay? So you're, straight away you're dealing with an evolutionary view of the human being. You also don't believe that man has a soul. So if you don't have a soul, what are you? You're just a body. You're just a mechanism that's not working. So, the different schools of psychotherapy, psychology, psychotherapy, um, they're trying to help alleviate the problems with the machine, basically. And the way the machine is producing these, these mental states. Maybe the machine is the brain. Okay, that's where this stuff about, um, you know, uh, imbalances in the uh, certain chemicals and hormones comes from. Okay, it's, that's that's often portrayed, but from my reading, there is absolutely no scientific research to back that up at all. Yeah, none at all. And I will give you the quotations. Okay, you're not going to. You know me. If you've taken courses from me, I don't rely on my own authority. I'm sorry. Uh, so, yeah, I meant to do this. And... Okay. Of course, I had my ringer on seven. There we are. But it's a very recent phenomenon. It's an usually an atheistic phenomenon, although some of them have reached into uh, the so-called insights from mysticism and uh, Indian religions and so on and so forth. They always bypass biblical Christianity, <laughs> apart from Christian psychologists, uh, which we'll get to. Um, here's one psychiatrist, Lee Coleman, from his book, The Reign of Error. 
the reign of error. And uh, in his book, he demonstrates that, quote, psychiatry does not deserve the legal power it has been given. And that, quote, psychiatry is not a science. And he says this, quote, I have testified in over 130 criminal and civil trials around the country countering the authority of psychiatrists or psychologists hired by one side or the other. In each case, I try to educate the judge or jury about why the opinions produced by these professionals have no scientific merit. No scientific merit. Okay? Um, Research psychiatrist Jerome Frank says that most psychotherapists, quote, share the American faith in science. They appeal to science to validate their methods just as religious healers appeal to God. Of course, he's not a Christian. Now, lots of people appeal to science. But it doesn't mean that they actually are scientific. Evolutionists appeal to science, don't they? All the time. And yet you ask them for an actual scientific um, truth of evolution and they can't show you one. So is it science? Science deals with things that can be demonstrated, things that can be, at least, if they can't be proven, at least they can be shown to be objectively there and testable. <clears throat> um, moving on here, just to... Uh, just Picking here a few things. Research psychiatrist E. Fuller Torrey says, quote, the techniques used by Western psychiatrists are, with few exceptions, on exactly the same scientific plane as the techniques used by witch doctors. He's not a Christian. He is a psychiatrist. He also says, if anything, psychiatric training may confer greater ability to rationalize subjective conviction as scientific fact. In other words, you say, oh, this, you know, this is my, it's your opinion, it's, and it's just your opinion, and you, because you're using this, this language, this verbiage, you're thinking it's science, just because you're believing your own opinion. Karl Popper, anyone heard of Karl Popper? He was a famous philosopher of science in the last century, definitely an atheist. Uh, he examined psychological theories having to do with the why of human behavior and the what to do about it. And he says that these theories, quote, though posing as science is, and he's a philosopher of science, had in fact more in common with primitive myths than with science, that they resembled astrology rather than astronomy. End quote. He also says, quote, these theories describe some facts, but in the manner of myths, they contain most interesting psychological suggestions, but not in testable form. Now, if you can't test them, 
they're not scientific because science is limited to that. Even though often, the, as we saw in other courses, um, the uh, opinions of scientists, people like Stephen Hawking, for example, and Richard Dawkins, you know, uh, they sometimes leach over into opinions where they have nothing actually should not be listened to because they have nothing to offer as far as any expertise is concerned. Uh, a friend of um, Stephen Hawking, for example, who has just passed away and is now a theist, um, said that uh, he was a brilliant, a brilliant physicist and cosmologist and mathematician. But as far as philosophy or theology, he, he didn't read any. He wasn't, he just didn't read any. He didn't know any. So he was a very bad philosopher, so the philosopher said, and he was also, of course, as anyone who knows the Bible is concerned, a really bad theologian. And yet we get people um, who claim that the you know if you if you uh, have a trauma or you have problems you've got to go and see one of these people because they can fix you. Did you know? And this has been done many 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 times. Um, and I will bring forward more information to you. I don't want to bore you, but. Uh, that as far as anything measurable is concerned, okay, when they have done tests, uh, so condition tests, people who saw psychologists, people that took medications or something, people that took placebos, people that were just left to themselves, there's hardly any difference. Sometimes, in, in one study that I'll quote to you, the people that saw the psychologists over a five-year period were actually worse when they revisited them years later than the people who didn't see anybody. Many times, and we'll get into uh, to, uh, psychotropic drugs and so on a little later, but many times people who are prescribed psychotropic drugs, psychotropic just means... Uh, 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 like mind-altering or behavior-altering drugs, okay? Prozac and Zoloft and, and strong drugs like that, okay? Um, th- those people, in, in tests that have been done, some people took, were given those strong drugs, other people were given placebos, and the effect was hardly different at all. In other words, just suggesting to a person that this would help them was all they needed. The drug did nothing. Another uh, authority here um, called Zilbergeld writes, quote, changes made by the presumably sophisticated methods of therapy are usually modest and not much different from what people achieve on their own or with the help of their friends. 
Now you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't think that from the way psychology is touted nowadays. But, you know, when, I'm no Donald Trump fan, okay? But, um, you know, he's an odd president, let's say that, okay? None of us would have chosen him as our first choice, I don't think. As, uh, you know, I'm very conservative, so I'm glad the other one didn't get in. But at the same time, you know, he's a bit of an embarrassment. So, especially with his tweets. So much so that one of the things that uh, the left has done is that they've hired a whole raft of psychologists to psychologize him but not actually talk to him and analyze him, just do it from afar by analyzing some of his speeches and so on and so forth. And of course, they were handpicked and they all came up with the right diagnosis, that he's nuts. Okay? That should tell you something about psychology. It's not scientific. Okay? One of these people, that's not a scientific uh, diagnosis. What are these people doing and how come they got so much authority in, in, uh, our land, you know? In, uh, they've got into schools. They've got into, um, uh, the political realm and we, we live in a psychologized nation and yet these people are very often quacks. I mean, none of these people call them that. That's me and maybe that's a little, Nasty for me to say that because some of these are men and women are good people as far as, you know, what they want to do. They want to help people and so on. But as far as calling their, what they do science, it's not science. How can it be science when there are 200 conflicting methods to do it? How can it be science when, uh, the, uh, the manual of diagnosing, diagnosing uh, some of these mental illnesses, a DSM, changes every uh, 25 years in its diagnoses and uh, the things it says should be done to deal with things. Homosexuality, for example, used to be diagnosed as a disorder in the DSM-3. Now, of course, it's certainly not a disorder, is it? Okay. Now, I'm not saying that it's either, because disorder comes back to what? Pro- a problem with the machinery. There's, it's disordered, you know, it's not working right. Do you see? That's what you're dealing with when you're dealing with psychology. And of course, what often happens, by the way, is that they invent a term. Um, Let's say bipolar or schizophrenia. And I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to qualify some of this later on. But you know, there are many people that, that believe there's no such thing as those things, particularly like bipolar disorder. Okay? Manic depression and so on. And certainly it may not be often and I can tell you this from my own personal experience, a problem with the machinery. Sometimes it's a problem with my thought life. 
Okay? So the problem is me. I've got to change the way I'm thinking. I've got to change the, the my value system. I've got to change... Uh, got to take the I out of my life. You know, I've got, I had I trouble. Okay, I this, I this, woe is me. When I stopped doing that and I started to do what the Bible says and that is to put others first and not think about myself, it took a while because of the habits and the physical problems that had been associated with that. Okay, but finally started to come out of it. I'll tell you more about that as we go through Right. Yes, yes. Um, going back to your example about President Trump, um, I also am not a fan, uh, but that's irrelevant. Just piggybacking on that to clarify. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, it is what they're doing. Yes, yes. Both, see, both folks are doing uh, the same thing, but as I'll show you in a minute, they're coming from different worldviews. And because they're coming from different worldviews and different uh, starting presuppositions about the human being, okay, they're treating humans differently. So, Abraham Maslow, you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, okay? I remember, you know, I was in business years ago and uh, we had to go through all this Maslow stuff, this, you know, to find out where we were on that pyramid. All right? Uh, Maslow was openly hostile to Christianity. Well, I was a Christian. But I had to, you know... If I wanted to keep my job or advance in my job, I had to take this this uh, Maslowian stuff. Okay, here's his worldview. Uh, he is a self-confessed humanist, and he believes that man is basically, tell me, good. That's right. Man is basically good. Carl Rogers. Man is basically good. Okay, Sigmund Freud, man is not basically good, but that's where he's, nearly every psychologist and psychiatrist disagrees with him, who's secular on that. Okay, but man is basically good. What does the Bible tell you? He's desperately wicked, as that's right, you see. So straight away, you have to choose sides, because if you don't choose sides as a Christian, your counseling is going to be affected by what you think. If you think a person is basically 
good-hearted. You know, we use that terminology. We know that we're not being objective about that. We're just saying that that person, you know, seems to be a nice person. Yes? Does good stuff. But we also know that objectively that person is as wicked as we are. But if we listen to that too much and we think this person that we're dealing with is basically a good person, so we're going to treat them like they're a good person, we're not going to apply biblical truth to their problem. Because the Bible can't be applied to them if we don't deal with sin. You see? Sin, that's the problem. In its different manifestations. Maslow's worldview depends on the central idea that the highest values reside in the human heart. Uh Uh-oh. That's the problem, isn't it, for someone with a biblical worldview? He that, you know, that trusts in his heart is a fool, the Bible says. Well, Maslow says you're supposed to analyze your heart and, and understand your heart, okay? This, he acknowledges, quote, is in sharp contradiction to the older and more customary beliefs that the highest values can come only from a supernatural God or from other sources outside human nature itself. Maslow makes it clear that there is no place for the the God of the Bible in his thinking. No such thing as original sin, no such thing as a sin nature. So the hierarchy of needs, you see, is built on top of this idea that you're basically a good person. So you're a good person and you have needs. And those needs are met. And if those needs are met, then you'll be an okay uh, civilian. But uh, what does the Bible say about needs? What's our first need? Our first need is actually reconciliation with God. (laughs) God will provide all your needs in Christ Jesus, will he not? So we're not, we're really worried about a bunch of hierarchy of needs, especially if the first, the, the, the top of the pyramid is what? Self-actualization. You know, actually actualizing yourself, becoming the self that you're meant to be. That's another way of saying it. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. So we're not going to go that way when we're dealing with somebody, when we're dealing with ourselves or where we're, when we're counseling somebody else. We're actually going to listen with biblical ears and we're going to diagnose biblically. <clears throat> also, if you think like this, um, if we have these needs and these needs are met, then in a sense, aren't we victims? I mean, our needs aren't being met. So we're kind of victims of society, are we not? When our needs aren't met. And so that comes into these help programs, you know, helping the victims of society. Society is victimizing people. They can't actualize themselves. And it it kind of passes through society. And it's completely unbiblical, and it doesn't work. 
many of the most self-actualized people are the most rotten people. Okay, they've got all of their needs met and they're still rotten. Here's one of them, Albert Ellis, uh, a very influential uh, psychologist of the last century, really hated Christianity. In fact, he said, quote, fanatic religionists believe strongly in some kind of faith unfounded on fact and frequently believe in spite of observable facts that contradict their belief system. They tend to be highly unscientific. Okay, he's, he's a psychologist, okay. Unrealistic, anti-empirical, okay. There's nothing testable about, uh, this psychology. Romantic and utopian. They frequently make up or believe in myths and fairy tales and stubbornly refuse to accept certain aspects of reality that oppose their religion. If you're a Christian, you go and see someone like Albert Ellis, you think he's going to be sympathetic to your spiritual struggles? You think the diagnosis is going to be helpful? If you are uh, people like Larry Crabb and other people are influenced by this guy. Okay? If, if you go and see a Christian counselor who believes that these people have insights, do you think they're going to be able to help you? Ellis again said, if religion is defined as man's dependence on a power above and beyond the human, then as a psychotherapist, Dun, 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 dun. I find it to be exceptionally pernicious. And so he would be one of those people, and in fact was one of those people who believed that you should uh, diagnose Christians and people like that as being some psychologically disturbed. Oh, he's a psychologist. He can say that. He gets listened to. Where's the empirical evidence? There isn't any. He just hates Christianity. He wasn't a very nice man either, according to uh, people that worked to, for him. So, um, I'll bring forward some more stuff on this, but the, the makers and the modelers of, of modern psychology and psychotherapy uh, were, first of all, they were anti-Christian, they were anti-theist, and... Uh, they had conflicting views, but apart from the fact that nearly all of them thought that we were basically good. And uh, it is their work that has seeped into and influences Christian counseling. Uh, I've been counseling, uh, I was counseling somebody recently who has anger problems, anger, real anger problems. It's been very, very disruptive in their family. Nobody that you know, okay? But um, this person has been seeing and paying money to a local psychologist. And I asked him, I said, well, what has the psychologist suggested to you to help you with your anger? I, he suggested that I take deep breaths. Well, that's good to take deep breaths and count to ten, you know, but is that dealing with the problem? 
And I said, I pointed him to the scripture, and says, he that is angry without a cause is in danger of hell fire. What do you think about that? I said, there is no excuse for anger. No excuse for that at all. Not in me, not in you. It's your responsibility to stop it. And other people are suffering because you won't stop it. So we need to get you to stop it, don't we? You need to take responsibility for your anger problem, and then we can get started towards dealing with it. That's the Bible. If that involves taking deep breaths, well and good. But the solution is going to be that he learns not to be angry. And of course, anger usually is sparked off by what? Pride. Okay? Pride. So, I know that one of the things that we'll be dealing with is pride. And this this individual, um, you know, has, uh, has informed me and told me about uh, stuff that uh, shows me that there are control issues, definite control issues. People walking on eggshells around him. Things aren't, the lights left on, for example, angry. Okay? So we have to deal with what's more important. A light bill that might be another five bucks a month or relationships with your people. People you say you love. Let the light bulb stay on all day if it needs to. You put relationships first. You put people first. Because you're destroying the people you'll love for a stupid light bulb. And of course, he sees, saw that straight away. Do you see? Very often, when we're confronted with, with things like that, when I'm confronted with things like that, I see it. But I need to hear it. I need to be reminded of it. But a lot of your biblical counseling will be just reminding people of what they already know. Okay. So, um, yes. Christian counseling, and I'm going to give you examples as we go through here, here and there. Uh, very often because it mixes up um, psychology and it, it's influenced so much by psychology and the psychological diagnosis and the psychological terminology, okay, and just tax bi- Bible verses onto it, usually out of context, uh, is is just as bad as secular. In fact, some Christian psychologists have, have actually said there is really no difference between what what we're doing and what the secular psychologists do. Well, we just quote the Bible sometimes too. Um, one of the worst things, if you ever get into Christian counseling and you do a lot of Christian counseling, one of the 
of your nightmares is going to be meeting the Christian who before they came to see you went to see a Christian counsellor, psychologist, okay? And you're going to have to convince them of things like you're not a victim, okay? You're not a victim. Your problems are not other people's problems. Even if people sinned against you, even if people sinned against you, your problems are not because of them, it's because of your responses to them. If they sinned against you, you can't deal with it unless you respond in the right way. Okay? If they, and some, um, some people really were terribly sinned against that I've, I've had to talk to. And it can't do anything about it because the person that did it to them is dead. Okay? So I take them to the end of Romans 12. And the end of Romans 12 says that do good to people that, you know, that persecute you like that. And so doing, you pour coals of hot, hot coals of fire on their head. But don't you be the, the person who seeks vengeance. God is the one who seeks vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I said, they don't get away with it. That should be good enough for you. Doesn't take away, doesn't take away the hurt, okay? I'm not trying to say that. Doesn't take away the damage. But as far as justice, hey, they're gonna get justice. Don't worry about that. That's handled. Okay? You don't need to worry about that. He now is paying for what he did to you and to other people. And paying He's going to be paying for eternity. Okay, that is more than enough. Okay, I wouldn't send people to hell for eternity. You know, even if I was really mad with them and I really hated them, you know, even if, if they'd done something so awful to me or my family, you know, maybe a million years. I mean, I've been alive, you know, 56 years nearly, and um, I'm just thinking, you know, if, I, if I'd been alive 200 years, that would have been a really long time. I mean, I would have been, I would have known, I would have heard Spurgeon preach and things like that. But a million years, you know, in hell, that should be good enough. Or maybe 10 million for the really worse ones. 10 million years, day after day after day, 10 million years. Folks, it's eternal. Vengeance is mine. They, that's taken care of, okay? That's taken care of. But um, now, you don't want to give them the victory over you and your life. What they did to you in the past should not govern what you are now. Okay? You can move on. You can. You can start doing things that break past and give you the victory over this. So that what happened to you doesn't enslave you, doesn't control you anymore. You can have freedom in Christ. Do you see? It doesn't define you. Unless you listen to the psychologist, then it does define them. 
They put a label on it. That's what you are. And then you meet some of these people as biblical as a biblical counselor and they define themselves already. I'm this. Well, you may be, you may not be. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to push past that and we're going to listen to you. We're going to go a bit deeper than that and listen and try to help biblically. All right? The two things are very, very different. Okay, any questions or anything that anyone wants to say on that? No? Okay, cool. Um, One of the things that comes into this is, and in biblical counseling, that we have to keep in mind, we we constantly have to keep it in mind um, in our lives too. Uh, Some people don't seem to struggle with this as much as I struggle with it. Okay? So maybe... Uh, you're not a person that, that struggles, and if you if you don't struggle in this area, I envy you in a very biblical way, okay? <laughs> a very righteous way. Um, but I'm a, the kind of a of, of, of person that really, if 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 I don't understand why, what God is doing in this situation, why this has happened, why it continues to happen. I don't see any value in this. You know, this is actually making me, you know, more resentful. It's making me harder hearted. It's, it's just causing trouble. It's causing friction. God, why don't you do something about it? And it's obvious that, that we need a fix here. We can't fix it. I've prayed to you and you aren't fixing it. Any of you like that? Occasionally? Okay. Um, look at, listen to this illustration. It's, uh, it's from a Puritan. And I'm going to be quoting quite a lot of Puritans to you in this course. This is from John Flavel. And... Uh, He says this. There was a great teacher, said uh, Jacob the baker, who told us that life was like a tapestry. I wondered about this for a long time, said Jacob. And then, watching you over the last days, I discovered that one works on a tapestry from the back, that you work on it without seeing the larger pattern that all you see are the colored stitches running at odds and at angles to each other. That indeed is like life. One day is woven into the next, but we cannot see the implications of every stitch in time. And so we work blind. Courage is the required pattern in life. Courage and faith. And God is, when you, when you understand that God is working our lives like a tapestry. Of course, he's not blind, but but he's working in those situations. Then the response is, my response to it might be, I might be in the flesh for a while, being indignant, being impatient, 
Okay, that, but then I remind myself that God is working in his providence. And I'm in his plan. And this is what God has for me right now. And it's life as a Christian is not about your best life now. And it's not about, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's about uh, being a soldier for Christ. It's about putting up with tough stuff, difficult stuff, injustice, pain. It's about putting up with some stuff, knowing that a good God is working all things, Romans 8, 28, for your good in the end. Faith, courage, fortitude. Do you see? And when I realize that, and when faith takes command of that, then my attitude changes. I've just counseled myself from Scripture. Do you see? All right. What's the time now? I can't see. Behind? Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. Thank you. So, having said these things then, let's talk here about uh, the fall. Oh no, no, we need to talk about uh, the different aspects of man. So let's, let's do that. Um, I particularly want to talk about the soul, the heart, the mind and the will. We probably won't get through all these tonight. Now, biblically speaking, these things are often synonymous, okay? We kind of, we have these words, and we could put spirit in there too. We have these words that we use, but often they overlap, okay? And we're talking about the same thing. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Bible is that it will sometimes use the word soul for soul and body. For example, it says that so many souls of the Israelites came out of the wilderness. Well, there weren't ghosts floating, you know, into the promised land, were they? They mean there, the, the, the word nefesh is used, but the mean body as well, actual people. Sometimes body is used that way in the New Testament, meaning soul. Okay? Not always, not usually, but sometimes. And what that tells us is something actually quite profound. It tells us that you are... Uh, meant to be body and soul. Now, because you're body and soul, that means that you have, and we're in a fallen world, you have bodily ailments, and those bodily ailments are sometimes, maybe often, going to impact your spirit, your soul. And you may have soul sickness, or sin sometimes, and that might impact your body. Do you see? And a biblical counselor is going to be aware of that. We are all aware, you know, the psychosomatic stuff. But but, but uh, we're all aware that uh, when we get the cold, we're not, you know, cock-a-hoop. We don't feel like parching. We don't feel like uh, talking to anybody. We just feel like dying somewhere, you know. We, it, it affects our mood, okay? When you've got a headache, a persisting, a persistent headache, and you, you know, maybe you're working Darwin on your job, or you retired now. No, All right, so, so, 
So when Darwin's working there, he gets a headache and so on, that's going to affect his mood because he can't concentrate the way that he wants to concentrate, but he's got to get this thing done. You see, that's going to maybe affect his mood. And he's not going to be the happy-go-lucky guy that he might be if he didn't have the headache. Do you see? We all kind of are like that, aren't we? You know, we just get up one day, maybe we don't know that we've got a cold yet, but we just don't feel... You know, it's it's like we go through the day and we're we're like treading mud, you know, and it's 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 difficult to get the wrecking gear. And then a few days later, we get sick, you know, and we realise that we were starting to get something, but our mood was in, was affected by that. So these are just simple illustrations of things like that and sometimes you're going to be tr- uh, dealing with people and maybe something that maybe they're sick maybe they're just sick <laughs> you know and that's the problem listen for that um maybe you know they're unhealthy maybe they need to eat better maybe if they've been you know been eating too much sugar that's my problem very often um eating too much sugar or too much uh, protein or something like that, maybe they need to change their diet a bit. If they're not exercising enough, maybe they need to exercise a little bit. Okay? Why? Because God's made them with a body that they need to take care of. I mean, not get, you know, overly crazy about it, like the American syndrome is, but, but... just take care of themselves a bit. And uh, understand that they've got a body, but we've also got a soul, we've got a spirit. That's, in a sense, our, our real person. The, uh, the soul is, is our um, the spiritual side to uh, our being. Not that the body isn't, isn't itself spiritual, but just... Our, um, our faculties, our thinking, our emotions and so on, these, are, these uh, come from the individuals that God has made us to be. The heart, we'll say a lot more about the heart, but um, the heart is man's mission control center. Okay, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, the Bible says. So it really is your mission control center. Keep your heart with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. So take care about where your heart is. Okay? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Okay? So you can see how biblical counseling can be useful in the direction of of the heart. Uh, But the... Both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, uh, the, the, the words that are used for heart also mean, very often, mind. Also mean, you know, your, your thinking as well. So a man, as a man thinks in his heart, do you see? So it's not just emotions. Okay? It's, it's, the way that you're thinking, the way that you are operating. And of course, the heart, as, as uh, you've pointed out in Jeremiah 17, is desperately wicked. 
desperately wicked. Who can know? So that means that we're going to have to concentrate on the heart in this course. Uh, the mind. <coughs> we're going to come back to, to some of this, but uh, the mind. Here, in, in, in uh, particularly the Greek, it, it uses uh, several words, and it's not important that you know them. But noose, you would have heard of, of this, probably, this word. You know, the noose. Um, it just means that, the, you know, the way that your mind works, okay? And uh, there, are, there are other, diagnoia, and, and, which is based on that word, thinking through something. Dia, okay, through, diameter, yeah. So diagnoia, the way you think through something. Um, there are different words, but basically they have to do with, uh, the, with the way that you're thinking, okay? So sometimes uh, you can say that the, the passage in Colossians, set your affections on things above, is set your thoughts on things above, do you see? In Colossians 3, so. The mind, how we're thinking. And then the will. The will. Very important because, you see, you've got to convince the will. You've got to get somebody who is willing to do what God tells them to do. And our wills can be stubborn. Why? Well, because... Um, sometimes we love our sin. Again, I'll point to myself, okay? Chocolate trouble. Um, you say, well, that's not a sin. Glad you agree with me. But at the same time, it can become a sin. Okay? I am overweight, okay? And my dear wife tells me that I'm overweight, okay? Of course, she runs and, you know, and, and stuff like that. I can't do that anymore. But uh, she's, I mean, there's no excuse. I can't make an excuse for, for eating too much chocolate. You know, it's gluttony, <laughs> okay? It's a sin, okay? But I, my will has not yet been captured by... <laughs> by the urgency of change, okay? And, you know, you might think that's a, a trivial thing, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes our sins can be, you know, really uh, controlling of us, and unless we change the will, get that in gear, we're not going to change, okay? I know I need to go on a diet, okay? And I, I know you guys have got a book, uh, a, a, a newfangled diet book, okay, which I'm interested in asking you about. But, um, but you don't, you know, unless you have the will to do the diet, you, you're not going to do it. You've got to change the will. Okay? And so, one of the things, in fact, one of the key things after you've listened to people, after you've talked to people, one of the key things that you're looking for is whether this person is willing 
you know, so it's not it's somewhat of a subjective just judgment but you'll get to to a firmer understanding of this whether this person is willing to change are they willing to do things so one of the things that that um Biblical counselors should always do it every time they meet is give somebody homework. Give them homework to do. Even if it's trivial. Okay? Read the Sermon on the Mount. They come back a week later or whatever. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? No, didn't have time. Okay? How much TV did you watch? <laughs> yeah? Yeah? So... Uh, that's no excuse. I don't want to see you here until you've done your homework. Why? Because you have got to persuade them and got to find out whether they are willing to do what God says. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. And I've had to tell numerous counselees that I'm sorry you're wasting my time. Unless you do what I tell you to do, don't come back. So, some of them haven't come back. Some of them have. Okay? Because they've realized, oh, this guy, you know, means business. Okay? I can't monkey, in, monkey around. Because, why? Because I'm interested in them doing what God tells them to do. I have nothing to offer them <laughs> other than God's truth. So, if they don't do what God's telling them to do, if I don't do what God's telling me to do, that until I'm willing to do what God tells me to do, we're just treading water. And we know that in our own lives. I know that in my own personal life. You know, this is the way I would like things to be set up in my life. I would love things to be set up so that I'm, you know, self-absorbed, doing my thing, uh, in my sin, in my own little universe, okay, and... Things aren't going right for me today, so I just want to call on God to come and help me. Lord, help me. Okay? And lo and behold, God doesn't do anything. And I get mad at God. Okay? Because God doesn't do anything. Doesn't answer my prayer. You, I mean, many of us, if we were honest, we'd like it to be that way. If we were wise... Though, we wouldn't want it to be that way. Because we know that God must be uh, a fixed point. We know that God is true and right and always uh, good. And therefore, it's not God's job to come away from being holy and true and righteous and join us in our little unrighteousness, it's our job to come to where God is. And that takes the will. Do you see? That takes the will. And it's just the... I was preaching on prayer today, wasn't I? And it's just the fact that God isn't going to pray for you. He tells us to pray. He makes promises about prayer. But we've got to pray, and sometimes praying is difficult, especially for other people. Especially, you know, when things aren't working out too great for us, and we've got all kinds of things that we want God to fix. 
before he gets on to these other people. But it's our job to pray. It's our job to do what God says. That involves the will. And so we're aiming uh, at the will. All right. Um, a little bit more and then we're going to stop for tonight, okay? Um, <clears throat> I want to say something about spirituality. By the way, if uh, I've actually printed a bunch of these off. It, the Facets of Man, it's, it's part one of... Uh, some lectures that I give, I gave, they're theology lectures, but they're down here if you're interested in grabbing one. And you can, we can read these, but, but I did want to talk about, uh, two things on here. The first thing is spirituality. Uh, because God's interested in us being people of the Spirit and being spiritual people. In fact, if we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, we are spiritual people. Did you know that? We are spiritual people, as opposed to natural people. Okay? So spirituality, in a sense, is what we're called into. It's what being born again means for us, at the most basic level. It means that we are spiritual now. To be a son of God, a daughter of God, and not be spiritual, I mean, it kind of doesn't make sense, you know? So, of course, we're spiritual, and yet spirituality involves uh, walking in the spirit and denying the flesh, you know, Galatians 5 stuff. Uh, one writer, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, says this. He says, as the bearer of the divine image, man is inescapably a religious being who, if he does not worship the true God, will idolatrously worship a false and finite God of his own imagination. Isn't that true? Because uh, there's even a spirituality in the unsaved people because of the fact that they were created by a spiritual being and who is a spiritual being and they, they kind of wander around walking past him but trying to find a spiritual antidote as it were just not the one that, uh, that is the true antidote. They... What they do involves a religious aspect, an idolatrous aspect. And so even when a Christian is coming to you and they're sharing with you their problems, one of the things you need to kind of be tuned in for is to the identification maybe of some idols that may be in their lives. Some things that they're putting ahead of God. Some things that, you know, they've searched out for. Some things they're putting time into and effort into. And they're bypassing God. And that's where, you know, you need to kind of design some change in for them. Sometimes that's not easy because of the hectic pace that we live our lives today. But often things can be done. Okay? Once we've identified that this actually is an idol, this is not, not that important, but this is important, then we can we can get that person back in line with the spiritual um, leading 
of God. So, that's most important. And then another thing that I want to uh, just say something about here is uh, authority. And we're going to come back to again to authority. But uh, you would think, because we're all Christians here, and because we know a lot of Christians, you would think the problem of authority was settled once we trusted Jesus Christ, who is, after all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And once we got our noses into this book, uh, we would think that that's settled. Okay? So we have a Lord in heaven and we're his servants. All right, understand that. And we know that this is his word to us. It's the only inspired book. It's the word from outside. It is the authoritative book of God to us. When it speaks, we shut up and listen. So, in dealing with Christians, you'd think, well, that makes it easy. You know, I mean, we just need to call them to the Bible. But this is something that the devil has, uh, and always has, but particularly in our era, has really worked all kinds of villainy and, and stuff on because he has undermined biblical authority. He has done it in several ways. Okay? Some of the ways, I'll just write up here, if I may. He has undermined it by just culture. Uh, for example, science. The voice of science. Put on a white coat and all of a sudden you're an expert. What, what's the difference between you know, you being an expert and not an expert, sometimes it's just donning a lab coat. How do we know that? Because there are adverts on TV that you have somebody talking to you in a lab coat and it says, this is an actor. And they still thought it was, you know, impressive enough to put an actor who knows absolutely nothing about what he's selling, just put him in a lab coat and all of a sudden people are going to listen to him. That's kind of, you know, the mystique uh, of, of science. And in my last course on apologetics and worldview, you know, I, I hit this pretty hard, saying that, uh, you know, you need to be really sceptical of a lot of the pronouncements of so-called science. Okay, a lot of it is nonsense. It really is. Honestly, it really is. And if you read the newspapers or... Uh, you know, over, say, a 10-year period, you will know that something is a scientific fact 10 years uh, ago, and now the science is different, and in 10 years' time, the science is different. So what happened to science being objective? You know, it's not. Uh, but here we can put also psychology, which, of course, tries to don the clothes of science, you know, the church has been psychologized. And so, uh, 
when you when you hear people saying, "Oh, I was diagnosed with this," or "My kid was diagnosed with ADHD," or or something like that, you know, you need to be careful. Um, you know, about it's about one percent of kids in France are, are diagnosed with ADHD. ADHD. About twelve percent of them are diagnosed that way in America. Hold on. Does that mean that uh, French kids are, you know, that there's something in the genes of Frenchmen that produce non-hyperactive kids? Or maybe the diagnosis is different. Maybe it's got something to do with habits. I mean, I, I don't want to simplify it and, and so on. It sounds as though I, I might be doing that. But but what what should that make you do? If you hear statistics like that, it might make you question whether this is actually a scientific finding or not. Uh, and we went through uh, in, in at uh, Southwestern, where I, I took some uh, some courses. We went through the DSM four, as it was then, and the diagnosis for ADHD. And uh, I'd be diagnosed as ADHD, which you know is a laugh if you know me, um, according to the criteria in it. I mean, anybody can be diagnosed as ADHD, quite honestly. But sometimes a kid's just hyperactive. Sometimes a kid hasn't had enough sleep. Sometimes a kid's been on video games too much. Sometimes a kid has been drinking too much soda. You might want to find that out as well, you know? But psychology, we, we live in a psychologized culture, so we need to, uh, we need to be aware of that because these are authorities that come in and, you know, you, you quote the Bible until you're blue in the face to some of the Christians and they're going to believe psychology. Or they're going to believe science. We've got to settle this issue with the counselee. Are you a Christian? Because we're mainly talking about Christians here. What is your opinion of the Bible as an authority? Because unless they take the Bible as an authority to tell them, okay, you're not going to get anywhere with them. Years ago uh, in Texas, I I counseled for many months. I counseled a, a couple, all kinds of problems, um, and the, the husband, he was doing all kinds of stuff that was wrong, but but uh, he knew the Bible, and so when I pointed to these things, he said, I'm guilty of that. Yes, I'm not doing that. And he admitted things, and he, he sorted himself out, because he saw it right there in the Bible. But the wife, she'd been to see a Christian counselor who had told her she was a victim. Okay, who has told her that it's other people's fault. I could not get her to sit in front of the Bible and apply it to herself. I couldn't do it. So I had to deal with him about how to deal with his wife who wouldn't listen to the Bible. Do you see? So you have to, you have to understand that some people, some Christians, you're not going to be able to help 
because they've got another authority over the authority of God. And until they relinquish this authority, whatever it might be, okay, just the, the narcissism of American culture, the selfie culture, um, can you remember back to uh, before um, these things <laughs> and uh, Facebook and, and things like that you know even before laptops and, and so on do you remember those days they're not halcyon days but if you put yourself back in those days, if you saw somebody in those days, you know, with a big long stick, okay, with a camera on the end of it, and they're kind of doing this, and you know, trying to take a picture of them, you would, in public, you would think they were loonies. You know, I mean, you would think, what is your problem? Now we're in a culture where people just do this, you know, and, and it's, it's just, that's just the way it is, the culture. We're in a narcissistic culture. Okay? And it bleeds through into the church. Our churches, I mean, sometimes our churches are the worst when it comes to this. Okay? How do we, how do you get people into, into your churches? Well, you have nice, comfortable pews and you have coffee machines. And you have rock bands, and you have lights, and you have all of this stuff, yeah? You understand? But what are you trying to do? Are you trying to, are you trying to save their souls? Are you trying to get them under the authority of the Word of God? Because what you're actually telling them by the accoutrements that you're using and making them feel all comfy and it's all for, about them is that it's all about them. And God's there for them. That's the message that you're telling them. So the culture, be careful of that because um, we can't do anything unless we accept the authority of Scripture and they accept the authority of Scripture. If they do, you're in business. All right, any questions before we wrap up this evening? Yes, Darwin. The body, the soul, and the spirit. Are we saying the soul and the spirit are interchangeable? Yes, this comes down to uh, what's called the dichotomy and trichotomy issues. And uh, often this is dealt with, uh, uh, or it comes up because of a passage in First Thessalonians 5, which talks about pray that your whole soul and body and spirit are preserved blameless until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so people say, uh, based on that passage, there is one more passage, but that one is the major one, that we must be body, soul, and spirit, based on that. If we're body, soul, and spirit, there's, then we have to distinguish the soul from the spirit. Okay? It's easy to distinguish the body, so now we're left to distinguish the soul and the spirit. That should be easy to do, but it's not. Because, for example, in one gospel... Jesus will talk about, uh, it will talk about Jesus being troubled in soul, and in another gospel it will say he's troubled in spirit. 
Okay? And these terms are used interchangeably. Okay? Some people say that the soul is kind of the, uh, uh, the more mundane, you know, um, uh, operating apparatus of the, the human being and the spirit reaches up to, to heaven, you know, is in contact with, uh, with heaven. Well, that's, that's not the way it's used in scripture. Very often the soul, suke, is used that way. So, um, when you, and I can give you some articles if you're interested. I wrote a boring article on this. Um, <laughs> on the transmission of the soul. But uh, <clears throat> uh, when you actually analyze the biblical data, you, you actually cannot make a differentiation between the soul and the spirit. Watchman Nee does, for example, uh, but Watchman Nee actually doesn't even follow a biblical view. He follows a platonic view. He's been influenced by platonic theology or, or philosophy rather than the Bible. So he's not even following the Bible in his book, The Spiritual Man, for example. Um, but that's a very good question. But yeah, for, for, for this course, and really for if we were doing systematic theology, we go into it much more deeply, much more boringly. But we are, the, the soul, the spirit is, is the uh, non-corporeal part of, of our being, yes. Anything else? Yes. Uh, after the teaching of Plato, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher. So Plato basically believed that, uh, I mean, I know we've got to go, but he basically believed that here we are, you know, and we're in our bodies. This is the best you're going to get from me. <laughs> and so we're in our bodies, but we've got souls, you see, in a, in, trapped in our bodies. And so... Um, the soul is not actually related to the body. It got trapped in there, and he's got a whole philosophy of an explanation as to why that happened. The soul is related to a, a realm of forms or ideas that are up there which are uh, non-physical. Okay, And in this, this realm of forms that's up there, uh, you have the perfect chair. You have the perfect dog. You have the perfect human, you have, you know, the perfect uh, prototype or, or, or not type, model or whatever, of things down here. So no chair down here is a perfect chair. But it does take, it participates in chairness. Okay, where did you get the idea of chairness from? Well, because of, there is a chair that's perfect in, the, in this realm of forms or ideas, do you see? And the body participates, oh sorry, the soul participates in this non-corporeal, spiritual ether land, you know, and it's, it's got to escape the body. So you, you have this idea that the body is the prison house of the soul. Okay? And body, that body-soul-spirit trichotomy comes from platonic thinking. Um, but it's not, it's not biblical. Not at all. Yes. Well, it, it it depends. That's a very good question, and we're going to get into that more. But it really does depend on 
how much of that teaching is directly traceable to the scriptures in their context and how much of it is influenced by just a few biblical texts that are taken to an extent, okay? So that really, um, it's dominating everything else. I'll give you an example. So um, last year, we had the the blood moons, yeah? The warnings, okay, the blood moons. And I, I was given a disc by some people and uh, would I show this in the church and, and so on and so forth. And I looked at it and looked at the author and I said, absolutely not. This guy's not, you know, ridiculous. This is all this guy does. Okay, he's imbalanced in his theology. But, you know, I wouldn't be able to... Uh, I knew this already. I wouldn't be able to talk to the people who gave it to me and try to convince them what, that this was not biblical. Because their whole way of approaching the Bible is this end time speculation stuff. Okay? That's what they use the Bible for. They haven't got time for hardly anything else. Okay? In fact, they, they even started to, to, uh, watch videos by a, a, a guy who's not even a Christian. He denies the Trinity. Okay? I mean, imbalance, you see. So, uh, when you're dealing with someone like that, you've got to try and identify that quickly, try and apply the truth to them. If they will not listen, you can't do anything. You can just, before they leave, you can say, well, this is what the Bible says. It's up to you whether you do something about it, but how, nothing will change. How do you see someone who's not giving proper doctrine being effective in administration? <clears throat> um, well, I would say... Obviously, are you talking about uh, a pastor or you, are you talking about uh, just a layman or what? Okay. Well, pastor, shame on him. And, you know, he's told he's going to be judged. Okay. So he better know his theology. He better. Because he's going to be judged severely by God for that. And, you know... Cynical Hennebury, I know I'm a bit, I tend to be a little bit cynical sometimes, but I do believe that 80% of our pastors, okay, are not called to, into the ministry. I do believe that. At least 80%. That's why the church isn't such a mess. Okay? That's why people come to me from other churches to be counseled. Why don't they go to their own pastors? They should be able to go to their own pastors. Um, oh, 80. Yeah, not 18, 80. Yeah. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, uh, you may have heard of him, he once said that uh, if 99% of preachers didn't show up for the pulpit the following Sunday, it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference. So, now that was his view. So I'm not as pessimistic as, as he was. So, as far as... as um, uh, people, you know, who are not are not to give themselves to to the study of the word and so on, like like pastors are. Um, I would say this. There's more to say, but I would say this: if they're a Christian and they they believe this book, okay, 
they are better qualified and in a better position to do good than sending them to a secular person. They'll do more good with just the bit that they do know. Okay, remember that quote about, uh, you know, there's no real difference between uh, whether they saw a therapist or whether they just, you know, were helped by friends. So if you're a friend with the Bible, you can probably do a lot of good. So don't ever think that, you know, you're not capable of helping somebody. Okay, you can be more capable if you know your Bible better, but... Yeah. All right. If there's no more questions, thank you for coming tonight. It was tonight was more introductory than anything else. It kind of set the stage for things. Uh, so what we'll look at next week is the fall. You know, we'll keep on this negative trail, but uh, <laughs> uh, we'll be looking at the fall and the effects, the consequences of the fall, because you've got to know about the fallen nature. Don't, you know, we got to know about that and then we'll look at pe- about how people are individuals. Okay? But they are people. But you've got to treat them as individuals as well as treating them as people. Um, and so we'll be, be looking at that, laying the foundations for um, this and then um, we'll be looking also at the fact that we're all messed up. All of us are messed up. So, you know, it's a, it's a case of when we're we're trying to help somebody. We're also helping ourselves. We're also correcting ourselves too. But it's just, that's the nature of the body, you know. It's the nature of what we're called to be. So biblical counseling in that context, I think, is, uh, it doesn't have this, this aura of, uh, you know, professionalism or mysticism or, you know, whatever. It's, it's actually more commonplace and doable when viewed in that in that way. Okay. Christian psychology is the worst, yeah, it's the worst of both worlds because uh, it's not Christian because it's not, they're not referencing the Bible or the doctrines of the Bible, so they're not diagnosing on the basis of what the Bible says, you know, sin, and they're not telling people, admonishing people to repent and do stuff like that. They're treating people and diagnosing them with, with psychology. And so if you're diagnosing them with psychology, the treatment is also, also comes from psychology. So yeah, definitely, because they don't want to be told that they're really good people or that, uh, you know, they, they need the Bible. They don't want to get messed up by being labeled as something, you know. I've got OCD. Okay, so they label themselves as I'm OCD. Okay, I can't help that I'm OCD. I just am OCD. I'm an A-type person. We, you might be an A-type person, but God says stop doing it. <laughs> you see? So I would definitely, and have done, say you don't want to see a Christian psychologist. Don't do it. I don't know if that shocks you, but I've, I've done that.
because I believe they, they cause a lot of trouble. Not all, I mean, all, they, they try to help. They might be really nice people and so on, but they're using things from two paradoxical worldviews. They don't fit together. The Bible is sufficient. That's what it comes down to.